Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School, my online intuition development program for people who want their self-awareness to serve a greater good. Registration for the Numinous School opens on June 1st. If you would like to secure one of the limited spots in this annual program, just go to my website, carmenspaniola.com, and sign up for the waitlist. On today's show, I'm speaking with Layla Christie Figali of River Rose Apothecary. Layla literally partners with plant allies and ancestors to do their work and believes that in the same way that human bodies can carry trauma, so can plant bodies, and also in the same way that human bodies and plant bodies can carry that trauma, they can also carry medicine, resilience, and ancient wisdom. I connected with Layla online. They were at home in LA. So Layla, what identities do you lead with? That's a good question. Interesting question. Um, You know, there's a lot of different ways to talk about identities uh, on the kind of socio-political world that we live in. Um, I identify as SWANA, which um, stands for Southwest Asian and North Africa, um, otherwise known as the Middle East, um, sometimes as Arab, (laughs) um, which I will spare the complexities of that identity right now, but for geopolitical purposes, definitely as Arab, um, um, as queer, as woman, um, as femme of center. Um, I, you know, and I, I think that, uh, in so many ways, like I identify kind of as a, as a person between worlds, um, in the sense that I am, a child of diaspora. I'm a child of immigrants. Um, I'm, uh, you know, a person who really straddles, you know, realities between worlds in so many ways, including in, you know, my own practice of just how I live life. And um, yeah, so there's a lot of just in betweenness, with even with my queerness, you know, and just with all my different identities and. Um, I think that increasingly as I, uh, you know, kind of grow into myself and just outside of the context, well, and also very much within the context of this social world we live in, um, you know, it feels more important to me to identify with my purpose, you know, with my purpose in the world. And I think that's something I've really learned and taken from, you know, every indigenous, teacher, elder, mentor, and tradition I've ever had the honor of learning from is just um, identifying with the place that I'm from, with the place that I live, and very much with the purpose that I carry, the spiritual purpose that I carry. Um, And I think I'm, that's still unfolding, you know, but um, in a lot of ways, it's also very between the worlds, because my purpose feels very much about um, kind of re- remembering my ancestors and uh, being kind of a collector, regathering their stories and sort of sharing the stories in my own heart. Can you 
locate us geographically then? When you say uh, you identify a swana, mm -hmm. can you um, take us even a little, like locate us in exactly what that land is yeah. that you belong to and um, your relationship to it? Because you also live in LA and grew up in LA. So I would love to hear a little bit more about, about that. Yes, thank you for asking that. Um, so both my parents are from Lebanon, which is for people who aren't familiar, um, in between Syria and Palestine. <laughs> um, so it's on the Eastern Mediterranean coast, um, otherwise known, often referred to as the Arab world. And um, I'm careful using that phrase because it's a very ethnically diverse region. Uh, and so, um, you know, geopolitically, I think it's kind of taboo to be Arab. So I sort of, it's a reclaiming to, to claim that, but um, internally, you know, it's also, you know, important for me to just acknowledge the incredible uh, ethnic diversity of that region and not, um, not erase that nor my own ethnically diverse ancestors within that region through mm -hmm. that. So I, I've, I've come to prefer the term Swana, you know, it's a less Eurocentric term than the Middle East. Um, and it's a more inclusive and geographical description of a region that is um, than, than Arab, the Arab mm -hmm. world per se. Um, so, uh, my parents are both from Lebanon. My mother is from a village in the south of Lebanon, uh, and my father's from a village in the north of Lebanon. And um, there was a civil war going on in Lebanon for most of my childhood, from about 75 to 93. Um, and it's kind of always still under the surface of things, unfortunately, and erupts from time to time. Uh, so my my parents both um, independently left under different circumstances for different reasons through the war and ended up meeting here in the in the United States um, indigenously referred to by some tribes as Turtle Island um, and then they met each other and moved to the LA area um, indigenously referred to as mostly Tongva territories that I live in and, and have grown up in. So my relationship for, for a lot of my early life, we, we didn't really spend too much time there because of the war. Um, but uh, I grew up in a very uh, culturally traditional family around a lot of Lebanese and other um, Arab uh, communities and families. So I, I sort of had a, a private life that was very much Lebanese and a public life that was a little bit more American. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, so after the war settled down, um, I did start visiting Lebanon somewhat regularly with my parents uh, because my father's whole family still lived there, including my grandmother and all my aunties and uncles and cousins and parts of my mother's family still lived there. So um, yeah, I remember and right when the airport opened again after the war, I remember taking a solo trip with my father. Oh. <laughs> it was a very interesting experience as a what nine or 10 year old um, in a very, yeah, freshly post-war um, 
environment. And I, I have a lot of memories from that trip. Was it kind of scary? No, actually, it was beautiful and magical and really a nice immersion. And, you know, the, you know, as a kid, it's like the kinds of luxuries you are used to in the first world are not necessarily as important to you. Um, but it was a really good immersion for me and sort of, you know, just not having certain luxuries like a lot of people around the world do, like, you know, hours of no electricity and like hanging out in candlelight with my cousins and aunties and taking showers in like lukewarm trickles of water that, you know, in the middle of winter. And, you know, the airport was chaotic with people smoking and, you know, military people all around and guns and cigarettes, but lots of love and hugs and like, <laughs> you know, all kinds of chaos and, um, and, you know, mad and Lebanon is a very, uh, you know, my father is a really special person to me. And, uh, he really always, there's something very indigenous about him in his essence and that he's very connected to the place that he is mm. from and very, um, of the land kind of feeling. So, um, I, I had a very like romantic sort of, you know, father daughter thing with my dad as a little girl. So in some ways, Lebanon was very familiar to me because it was so much the essence of my dad. So being in the mountains and, you know, experiencing the land actually, even from that young age was really um, familiar and really magical to me. Mm. Uh, Is that how your relationship with plants? became developed? You know, maybe indirectly, you know, without my consciousness and not my, uh, my conscious knowledge. But um, I kind of was always a kid who, I think that when you grow up in diaspora and to immigrant parents and sort of between the worlds in that way, at least for me, there was always this kind of like tugging to understand where I belonged. And um, to just understand the fullness of the picture that I was from, like try to make sense of myself mm. um, because I felt very in between places and, um, and the tensions and, and just the complexity of that was always tugging at me. So I was always the kid who was asking my parents for stories about Lebanon and stories about my ancestors and stories about this and stories about that. In fact, on that trip, my dad, he always tells me he's like you completely embarrassed me because you know I hadn't been to Lebanon in like you know eight years and you as a nine-year-old ten-year-old girl you know the first thing you said when we got to my village was when are we going to visit the grave of my grandfather who I had never met and he was like oh my god why didn't I think of that and my you know nine-year-old daughter is so um, you know, my, and so part of the stories that I was told was about my grandfather who died before my parents were uh, married and who was a poet who used to write poetry about tending his fig trees and his olive groves and had like a very um, a strong love of, of plants and was a plant tender. And um, so, and my mother's side of the family, my maternal grandmother who lives in the diaspora too, actually. Um, she's also very much a plant tender. So in this indirect way, you know, I think my father's sort of very, very soulful relationship with the land and the coast and the water and the, just the really 
very natural elements of where he was from did kind of translate into this sort of awareness and respect for the natural world and the plant realms. Um, but I was raised by my parents very much, you know, like, okay, you focus on school. We brought you guys here to do well. All those things that, you know, of the earth that we know, we're not really going to emphasize teaching them to you because, you know, now it's, we're on a professional route, you know, we're like trying to make life happen in the diaspora and, you know, all the ways that development and colonization and, you know, displacement and migration um, and just like capitalism affect, mm. affect traditional peoples and cultures. And so um, in some ways it probably did influence me, but in a very subtle way. And so my, I, I basically, because I was always kind of tugging back for that understanding, as soon as I was old enough to start coming back on my own, I did, I like in, in university years, I would start coming and taking, you know, my whole summer there and spending time in the village with my grandmother and trying to collect stories and just being there and um, kind of moving back and forth, which is mm -hmm. what you see now. And so who, first introduced you to the magical world of plants and their medicines and how you could be in relationship with them and the land through them? Yes, that's a great question. Um, so I have that backdrop of just coming from traditional families of plant people, including, you know, very embarrassing memories as little kids, like being at like going to a birthday party at the park and my grandma or aunt or my mom seeing uh, or one of the Lebanese grandmas or aunties we were with being like how is that fruit tree full of fruits and those people are just letting it fall on the floor we need to go harvest them <laughs> so there was that <laughs> and I have to acknowledge and credit that you know for the place that it has in my awareness of the plants um, and then you know in my when I was in my 20s um, I'm so bad with years. I'm kind of bad with linear things in general, but at some point <laughs> in my early adult years, um, I was kind of on like a deep personal healing journey around a lot of my own trauma and a lot of my ancestral trauma and a lot of different things that were coming up. And I was sort of just seeking in general, uh, a lot of, um, I was just seeking healing really. Um, and I think during that time, a lot of different uh, pieces and ways of, of healing started coming into my life and introducing themselves. And um, one of them was um, a curandera, who's a Mexican traditional healer. Her name was Estela Roman. And she actually was uh, introduced to me through, um, by, uh, a friend of mine, um, Atava Garcia Suiseki, who is um, the founder of a really lovely school for uh, plant and indigenous and folk and ancestral knowledge in Oakland called Ancestral Apothecary. And um, I had been, I kind of was starting to be a little interested in exploring plants at that time um, with Atava, but I ended up actually taking one of her dream her dream circles. I, I was part of a dream circle that she was hosting and she would incorporate plants in there. Um, and sometimes I would help her medicine make and do stuff like that. So I was kind of starting to 
move into that at that time. And then, um, and then I was working and studying a little bit with Estela, who um, continued to teach me a little bit about plants. It, it, although it wasn't the focus of her practice, um, it was certainly an introduction. And um, both of them kind of gave me an introduction that was very much more about using plants in a ceremonial or a spiritual and energetic way to kind of support your emotional healing and your spiritual healing processes. Um, and so at that time, that's what I needed. And that's really what I was drawn to. And, uh, and my dreams started honestly introducing me to the plants and to their medicine and instructing me to take that journey a little bit deeper. So eventually I ended up, um, going to school, doing, getting formal education by Karen Sanders and Sarah Holmes up at a school in, in Northern California near Mount Shasta called the Blue Otter School for Herbal Medicine. Mm. And, and so they were my first formal teachers and I've had, I've been very blessed to have other teachers since. And so what would you say um, if you could choose some highlights for listeners to kind of get into a connected state or receptive orientation towards the plant kingdoms, the plant realms, let's say. What would you say are the most important lessons that your teachers have taught you about how to be in right relationship with plants? That's a really good question. I've been very fortunate because um, I think all of the teachers I've had are um, are indigenous and or have an indigenous understanding or framework for approaching plants and the context of this land. Um, and so, you know, the, the protocols uh, all include reciprocity and gestures of, of reciprocity and permission and um and responsibility um in different ways so i'm gonna try to we could go into those deeper too if you would like to but i think that underlying all of it um it's really just to be in relationship like actually be in relationship uh meaning that um i think that you know in the western mind and way of thinking sometimes like we still have a very clinical approach to plants where they're more like objects that we can use that have specific functions and everything's really like this equals that and this equals that and this is what it's used for and we don't really you know sometimes people just actually don't know how to be in relationship at all meaning being present and actually listening and actually opening yourself to experiencing with all your senses um the being that you're interacting with and what it is you are feeling and uh, learning through that relationship. And um, in some ways directly and in a lot of ways indirectly, I think the biggest teaching I've received is just, um, yeah, is really just about that, is about being in relationship and just how, how diverse, you know, our individual uh, relationship with any individual plant is like how non-mechanical it actually is. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, you had a beautiful post on Instagram. If people want to follow you, it's River Rose Apothe- Apothecary, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. You had a beautiful post about looking for a particular plant and you were on a hike with friends or cousins and looking for this particular plant and you called out to this plant. <laughs> and I just thought, like out loud, because I've done that, you know, in my mind, it's like, yeah, I'm going to commute like it's, you know, telepathic. But I thought, you know, sometimes I, I have a tree in my backyard. I call the an- my ancestor tree. It's a um, a big ash tree. And so I often greet it or I sometimes, you know, greet them with my ancestor's name, this particular ancestor that I work with. They're one and the same to me in, in many ways. And, um, I always sort of thought, well, that's very private. (laughs) I only like say it just to her. I couldn't imagine calling it out. And then I thought, wow, why not? It's so beautiful. Like when you're saying you're in relationship, you really mean it. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I'm like not kidding at all. In fact, I, you know, I think I'm a little extra on that. Uh, I mean, anyone who knows me, (laughs) truly (laughs) will just attest to the fact that, you know, I'm, I might be like the annoying auntie who like really, I hope not, not totally smothers, but just like has uncontainable love for my little niece or nephew or like my puppies and like the plants really get a lot of that. So I have this like inner, maybe like five or seven year old girl that really gets to play when I'm hanging out with the plants. And and with the natural world in general. And so, yeah, it's funny you mentioned that story because that specific plant is, um, it was a rue plant. And it's funny because in that dream circle where I took with Atava in the very beginning of my, kind of like ushering in my more extensive relationship with plants. I, w- I was searching for teachers at that time. and and. Um, because the dreams started to come to me at that time. Um, and that was the specific plant that I remember from that class that she had brought in one day, just, you know, probably was blooming in her garden and she decided to bring it and she started talking to us about it. And I was so profoundly drawn to it and connected to it. And, um, And I would later find out that that plant, while used extensively in the, you know, curanderismo traditions here and in a lot of indigenous diasporic traditions from the West African diasporic traditions to, um, you know, all across uh, like Latin America and, you know, yeah, all over the place really here and Brazil and Mexico and Maya land and everywhere. Um, but that it actually is native to my region. And in fact, it was native to my village. And in fact, it, my cousins would tell me, cause I, I started, you know, later on, I was like, wow, you know, like this plant is so special to me. And then I, I learned, you know, that it was native to that area. And, and so on that walk, you know, you know, my, my cousins were telling me, oh yeah, we used to see that plant all the time. You know, when we were growing up, we would come back smelling like it. And it has a very strong fragrance that some people greatly dislike and some people love. 
And so I was calling it out loud and I do get teased. It is a little personal and intimate and my cousins continue to tease me to this day. Um, they're like, oh my God, the, the girl who talks to flowers, literally out loud. Um, but I think they probably find it a little endearing too. So I was calling it because I knew that it was somewhere there and, you know, and, and, and she responded you know, we, we got detoured at the end of our detoured quote unquote at the end of our walk. And it was like in those few yards of a detour that she was smack in the middle of, of, of the path. And my cousin had been telling me from the very end of our trail when I started calling her, cause I didn't find her. And I was so sad. Um, you know, he had been like, yeah, could you stop? Like, we're not going to find her, you know, like you're still bent on finding her. And when I, you know, found her and I was like, come look, <laughs> and he was like, whoa. Okay. <laughs> well, so when you were calling, were you like, Rue, where are you? Or do you have like a particular song to try to sort of coax her and like flirt her out? Or, you know, is it courtship? Or is it just like, hey, I'm here? Like, is it like Marco Polo? How, how, how are you? How are you? Know, you I think it's like different things. I was just following my own heart and just like saying it out loud. But I think I'm not on that particular walk. I was, I was more like, Rue, where are you? You know, like a little bit more like that or like, you know, and probably a little bit of, a little bit of like, I, I love you. I want to see yeah. you, you know, like, I know Aww. you're here, you know. No, so, yeah, and, Aww, and you know, I think that that's the, it's the, it's the, it's like a place where, this is part of my love for plants. It's just that, there's a lot of safety, I think, for me and being able to express those part, those kind of playful and also just very um, between the worlds and very magical parts mm -hmm. of myself. And um, for it to be so profoundly well received and mm. responded to, you know, and it's really magical, you know, it's really um, and it's really intimate and and healing and in, in and of itself yeah so here's a question that i i i'm pretty sure is going to be really juicy and interesting how is your foraging process different when you're in la versus your ancestral homelands in lebanon yeah that's a great question um i yeah so i was kind of mentioning to you before but so the term foraging does not resonate with me at all. In fact, I kind of cringe a little when I hear it. I know it's like a common term in the in the plant world, but I, I don't really identify as a forager. Um, and I think part of that, I mean, there's a lot of reasons. I, I think that I have a colonial association with that term. It feels like going in and just taking things. And it feels like the opposite of relationship to me. It feels like, you know, extracting. It feels so extractive. Um, so, and I, and so I guess I don't do much, I'll say gathering in that way. Um, because my practice is less traditional in its clinical expressions than I think a lot of um, other people who would call themselves herbalists. Um, 
And it's a lot more about that relationship and about kind of, it's almost like, it's like building that relationship for the healing. Like for me, that is the medicine. It's almost like that's all it takes. Like that was my medicine. I didn't need to take Rue home with me. I didn't need to, I didn't need to do that. I just needed to commune in that moment. Um, so, so let's see, there's multiple pieces. My foraging process does not, it doesn't really exist too much, but when I do need to gather plants, um, it actually doesn't look very different here or in Lebanon. And the reason why is that, um, and I guess I have to give a little background about this. So I was, I'm, I was taught and, um, and the first person who taught me this was Karen Sanders, who was my teacher at Blue Water School. Um, and I've had many teachers who have, you know, and just peers and just other plant lovers who have shared and, and spoken about this before. Um, you know, we live in very compromised ecosystems in a lot of ways. Um, capitalism and just colonialism and development really do a number on our on our natural environments and uh, especially on the native plants which are already enduring quite a lot just as native people have and are on on these lands and in all the places where you know they have been uh, exterminated quite frankly in order to create space for um, for people that were yeah, settlers, basically. Um, and so I think just, and then we have climate change and we have all these other ways that humans have um, contributed to compromising our natural world. And so our plants are so abundant and so generous for still being here. And they're also very much in a delicate space of being severely compromised. Um, so on this, on this land, I do consider, and Karen Sanders would teach us that, you know, you have to be aware that when you're harvesting in, in this land and you're not from this land, you could be harvesting, first of all, from a patch of land that a local native family has been tending to in the wild and harvesting for years. You could be harvesting in an area that used to be 12 times more abundant and is not doing very well. Um, you could be harvesting in a way that actually is jeopardizing um, the life of a certain animal or, or other non-human being that literally depends on it and wh who we all need to keep the ecosystem alive and well. So there's all these other relationships that we have to consider. And I think in this kind of delicate time, it's really important. So I actually, here I tend not to, I, I really tend to avoid wild crafting of all kinds. Um, and, and what I was taught by Karen is that if you are going to wild craft, you should be in relationship with the place you're going to wild craft from for I think she would say seven years. And you should know that place in every season. You should know because you, and you should be tending it. You know, you wanna build that relationship both as a form of reciprocity, but also as a form of consciousness of like, you need to know 
is this a healthy space? Are these plants endangered? It looks like there's a lot right now, but maybe it's actually not a lot because it used to be six times as much. Um, and so being able, and you'll be able to see, is someone else harvesting from here? Is this somebody else's you know, plot of land? And just ha have a more responsible relationship to where you're ga gathering from. Um, and I usually, I tend not to, ju I just tend to try to go to like organic sources or friends who grow or to grow myself if I can. And if I'm really in a desperate situation, then, um, you know, I will just consider what I know, what I just shared and mm -hmm. go to places I know. And sometimes if I'm with um, an elder or a mentor, particularly if they're indigenous to this land and they invite me, or I'm on land that somebody I know is tending and they invite me to harvest or gather from their land, then, you know, then I, I'll do that. Um, and then in Lebanon, even though I'm, I am like allowed to be there in a different way, I guess, like I belong there or like I, you know, I'm, I'm not a settler there, even though I, I honestly haven't lived there for most of my life. I mean, and, you know, in a lot of ways, like, this land knows me more, you know, in a certain sense. Um, and the spirits of this land are the ones who have been kind of taking care of me every day and um, supporting me to, to live for most of my early years. Um, but in Lebanon, we face the same problems with just like a really hugely rapid development and, um, you know, the, the native plants are really being threatened. So I, I, my dream in Lebanon is really actually to create my, to have my, my ancestral um, home be kind of like a sanctuary for the native plants and to start um, moving the native plants there so that I can both harvest from my own, harvest them from my own land, but also tend to them to ensure that as things develop further, that there's at least one place where um, the ecosystem that is uplifted by those plants can be intact. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. So what I have a teacher here, she's a Rara Muri elder. Her name is Olivia Chumacero, and she has been really, really just a profound uh, teacher in terms of teaching about restoring native plants and you know and you know Karen used to talk about this a bit too just like you know you want to be good to the nature around you and to the wild around you and to the native communities and ecosystems that you're a part of like yeah be in reciprocity go scatter seeds instead of going to harvest go scatter seeds in the fall go pull invasives like remove invasive plants like so that's a good there's a good wild crafting process like you want to wild craft like wild craft the dandelions you know what i mean wild mm. craft the the non-native species of plants that also have so much medicine and you, mm. it'll be like a win-win-win situation <laughs> nice i'm looking forward to doing some of that um this podcast is a complement to a year-long intuition development program i have called the numinous school and it's been running it'll be five years this year and when, when you've done it one year you can just keep taking it like again and again and um so for those people who've been in it for a while uh 
this fall in 2018, we'll embark on a, a practicum program. Mm. And we're going to meet on all the solstices and equinoxes, and, and some of them will have teachers. So it'll really be about gathering for ceremony. But one of the teachers uh, that I just love has also been on the Numinous podcast is uh, Tiffany Joseph, and she's from um, uh, the Squamish and the Sartlip First Nations local. And I said, what should we do to get out on the land? And she'll come and do territorial acknowledgement. But I also said, I'd love to um, have the group come out. And she said, let's pull blackberries. (laughs) And I was like, yes, let's all get together and work and um, do some pulling while you just tell us about uh, the ecosystems. Because where where her... um, uh, traditional terries are, territories are, are, but also her current home, uh, was a cranberry bog, but now there will never be cranberries that could even be, um, uh, rehabilitated there because it was industrial farmland after that, you know? And so it's, it's just, it's very heartbreaking, um, that even if they had the means to try to restore that habitat, actually, it'll it'll be so many generations before that those plants could live there wow. anymore. That um, I'm really excited to do that kind of work with her. I'm curious. So you've talked about some of the um, reciprocity protocols, and I'm I'm wondering. Let's say there was a little, you know, plot of land or a little. A section of a trail or something like that that you wanted to tend to. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking in particular of um, I love the native roses from here, the Nutka rose, and they're so fragrant that I would love to be able to um, gather from some of them. Um, but I'm thinking, okay, well, I would find a trail that has you know quite a lot of it, and then I would have to visit there again and again. So I'm curious if you have any spiritual protocols if you were going to be in relationship uh, and be stewarding this land um, here uh, on this land as a settler what have you developed or what do you do to make sure that spiritually you're on the land in a good way um, and I'm thinking why well, you've you've sort of laid this beautiful banquet for us in, in terms of everything you've already said but I'm curious kind of from a ritual perspective mm-hmm. if there's anything you do mm-hmm. yeah I mean it's interesting I think some of the things that we've already talked about are actually like really what I do which is just comes back to the relationship piece which is like it's funny because I think you asked the question about being in right relationship and that is such an indigenous, that is such indigenous languaging, right? I mean, at least in my knowledge of that term. And so I think it's like, well, like, well, what it like being in right relationship, meaning like being in relationship, (laughs) you know, like that's really it. So I think that, you know, I think that acknowledging and, you know, making an offering to the spirits of the place that I am in. No matter do you give water? Do you give your hair? Do you give, like, do you have special things that you give? No, I mean, you know, in this, in this context, I was always taught to give tobacco. And I know that's more of a, a native tradition, a North American native tradition, and probably not for every tribe either, but for the, the, the people who I have learned from. Um, for me, you know, and so sometimes when I'm here, I, 
I feel called to do that. And I actually grow my own tobacco. And so I try mm-hmm. to like give tobacco that I've grown. And um, so I, I, sometimes when I'm here, I, I like to honor that specifically here because um, I feel like it's an honor to, it's, it's honoring the spirits of this land because it's the, that is the thing that honors the spirits of this land. Sometimes if I don't have it, I, I think it's, it's like, you know, and I've been taught too that I think it's less about what you offer sometimes too, and just more about offering. So sometimes I'll offer a song or yeah, water or um, just a prayer or just, you know, whatever, whatever it is. And then um, I do think sometimes about that though, when I'm in other places, like what honors the spirits of the place that I'm in, you know, you know, it's probably different in different places, even though tobacco still carries the energy, you know, that it carries wherever it is. Um, So I think, so offering something um, and not just offering it, but, but speaking, you know, introducing yourself, you know, introducing yourself and um, just speaking your intention and just like, you know, just acting right, like you would with a human, you know, like really that's, that's really what it is, right? If you go and you meet your partner's grandmother for the first time, like, how are you going to act with her? Are you going to come empty handed? Are you going to just barge in? You're probably going to introduce yourself. Maybe you're going to share a little bit about who you are and, and why, you know, with the plants, like you might share about why you're there. You might, and you just listen, you're just going to hold space to get to know her. Right. Um, it's really not different in a lot of ways. Um, you know, it's really not different. I think it is really just about being in sincere relationship and creating the presence and the space and, um, the acts of just gentle reciprocity that, um, you know, like you don't, if you meet someone for the first time, you might not, Uh, hug them right away or you might it depends on the feeling right it depends on the relationship you build it depends on the type of person they are it depends on a lot of things right it depends on how much time you spent on what kind of encounter you had on whatever it is so it's like I think just paying attention to Mm. to what you feel and um and always asking permission if you are going to harvest and I did want to say one thing one of the things that I think there's still ways to connect with the plants in the wild that um, that allow you to still work with their energies without kind of compromising their environments. And one of the things that I love to do is make flower essences because it's like a very uh, beautiful, profound kind of medicine that um, really does not take plant material very much. And it's just as intimate, just as powerful and so I think just, just spending time and like being available in that way. And yeah, making an offering and, you know. Do you have a resource for people who want to learn how to make their own flower essences? Or would you recommend that they actually do take a herbalism class? You know, I mean, I'm sure like Google has 5 million or like yeah. YouTube <laughs> University probably has like a million tutorials on that. And there's probably like 6 million books. And, um, and like, I think classes are great personally specifically for flower essences because mostly because it's just really magical to do that work in a group and Mm -hmm. um 
And I think especially for people who are not um, as confident or as comfortable in their own way of listening or hearing the natural world, you know, it can be really empowering to to learn that in the context of a group with, um, and just in the collective space. I think you you really learn a lot. You can really empower your own kind of nonlinear mm-hmm. <laughs> wisdom. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, I think that um, I know that my own attunement is way more heightened when I have others and there's just kind of collective focus. I totally agree. Now, as we're just wrapping up, I'd like to ask you, which plant allies do you call on to help you when you're experiencing um, some of the really tough emotions like grief and like rage? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Um, Yeah, they're very un, un, under acknowledged <laughs> emotions um and the plants are so just masterful at helping with that um it's funny i actually one of my favorite medicines that i offer which was inspired by a formula that i made for a very close friend that was grieving is a grief formula and it's very popular i must say um because i think a lot of us just need help with that because it's really hard in our cultural context um, so I'll, I'll give you some of my go-tos and I just want to say that kind of just back on the theme of relationship that one of the things I've learned about plants is that sometimes the ones that can help you most are the ones you have the closest relationship to, even if that's not what they're quote unquote for. So sometimes when I'm going through something really hard, um, I find myself leaning in on a plant that I know in a particular way um, that I may have not thought to go to for that before because the relationship is the medicine. Um, But I think that one of my favorite plants to work with for grief is sage. Um, Another one are are violets. (laughs) So, so beautiful and sweet. and for rage, in fact, I often use these together, the sage and the roses. Uh, I, 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 roses, I think of a lot for anger and rage. Um, and, and, and the rue, of course, which again is part of my relationship to that plant, but also just a really uh, powerful and masterful plant at, um, supporting us through strong emotions and yeah and so, but the sage sage is really uh one of my go-tos for the for the grief um yeah and, and I, just I like to clarify for people you're not talking about culinary sage you grow a is and there's clary sage and there's other kinds so what kind do you grow for that particular purpose very interesting question so i actually use lebanese sage for that but um actually i think that you know, any kind of sage would probably help with that. I think that uh, most sages have some, some qualities in common around their uh, kind of their coolness, their mm-hmm. grounding qualities, um, their clarifying qualities, and um, something about their relationship to 
like water and earth together. Grief <laughs> like, is kind of a watery, mm-hmm. a watery thing. And so, and just like their coolness and the, um, yeah, the, the way that they hold, they're very grounded plants. So you could use culinary sage yeah. if that's what you got, if that's outside your back door. Yeah, yeah. I, w- I will definitely say like, especially after the conversation we just had, like, please do not go harvest white sage. Mm. Please do not harvest white sage. It has become like a very, um, very unfortunate situation, especially, mm. I, I have to say that too, being in LA, where white sage grows uh, natively. And besides the way that it has compromised the practicing native communities who use that as a ceremonial plant, it's also, you know, people don't know how to harvest properly and they do a lot of damage. Like those plants have a really important role in the ecosystem. They prevent land erosion and really important things like that. And it's they're practically endangered because of how trendy it has become so if you do want to use white sage go um you know contribute money to a farm or a group of people that are uh, restoring white sage or growing it in a sustainable way and grow some yourself Mm, that's excellent advice thank you so much for this very educational discussion, Layla. I really appreciate you sharing your gifts, but also offering your wisdom and, and gentle counsel. And I will be sure to heed that. I, and, and I'm uh, going to include uh, the links to your teachers and um, anyone that you'd like to lift up as people you'd like uh, to acknowledge so that people can find that in the show notes because you've given so many resources. It's been very generous. Thank you so much for being on the show. It was great to talk to you. Mm, I love that. The relationship is the medicine. And you know what else I'm going to remember about this interview are those three principles that Layla spoke about in terms of being in relationship with the plant realm. And what they said was, It's about reciprocity, permission, and responsibility. I'm going to remember that forever. To learn more about Layla's work and what they call plant-cestral wisdom and medicine, you will find lots of links in my show notes. And also you'll find information that you can, you know, follow around um, their work with the Swana uh, Plant Medicine Hub. And... Their teachers, they listed several uh, wonderful people who are working with plant wisdom that I think you'll find very interesting. As always, I'd like to thank some of my listeners. And today I'd really like to acknowledge my local listeners. So from around here uh, on Lekwungen territory in Victoria, uh, over on the mainland, Vancouver, uh, Southern BC, the Okanagan, Uh, all of these places that I visited and uh, where I've spent time on the land, it's really brought me up and raised me up. And I really appreciate being able to um, share this land with you. And speaking of land, if you'd like to come out and spend some time on the land with me in uh, sort of uh, southwestern BC, the Caribou Chilcotin area, you should consider coming on Quest with me in June. 
spending the full moon on the mountain, spending time in ceremony and ritual, getting into a, a more inter-animist relationship with the other inhabitants and, and the more than human realm. If you'd like to do that, again, just go to my website, carmenspaniola.com, C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.